how to never binge eat again, how to talk to yourself compassionately, how to make sure you don't put the weight back on if you already lost it, how to ensure that you don't need willpower in order to succeed, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 445 with psychologist and author of Never Binge Again, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Best You Podcast with me, your host, Nick Carrier. At Best You, we exist to help individuals who are hungry for growth get closer to the best version of themselves so that they can live meaningful and impactful lives. One way that we do this is through the 10-week transformation where we help people lose body fat, build muscle, and create healthy habits so that they are positive role models for others. If you're interested in losing 5 to 20 pounds in the next 10 weeks, then go to nickcarrier.com slash 10 w to get started today. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10WT to get started today. You guys, today I am super stoked to bring you Dr. Glenn Livingston. After trying 20 plus times to lose weight, Glenn got to 300 plus pounds and made a huge paradigm shift that would change his life forever. He spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. But really most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and out of a food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more light-hearted relationship with food. Before diving into the episode, be sure you're subscribing to the Best You Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member while you're listening. If this sounds like something that they're going to benefit from, then send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, then I would love it if you leave a five-star rating and review. But without further ado, buckle your seatbelts. Here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Dr. Glenn Livingston. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. I am super excited. I've been looking forward to this one for a while to be joined with the one and only Dr. Glenn Livingston. Uh, Dr. Livingston, I just want to start off by thing, saying thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Thank, thank you for having me. I'm sorry my shirt got a little wet at the last minute. It's raining outside, um, but I'm really happy <laughs> to be good. here anyway. All good. Yeah, for sure. So as I've we've discussed in our kind of email conversations, I love diving into your book, Never Binge Again. I think it's a title that a lot probably grabs a lot of people's attention. And obviously your podcast is called the Never Binge Again podcast. And I think everybody has had the experience of binge eating to, to one extent or the other. And obviously to certain degrees of different people have certain degrees of the problem of it. And so I'm really excited to talk about it today. And the way, way I want to kind of start is you talk about in the, in the book, you're a formerly obese guy with very poor cardiovascular genetics. And I do think a lot of people see themselves as someone who's always going to be this way. I've just always been this way. There's no way for me to get out of this. And it's impossible and so what do you say to that person who is kind of living in this identity of I am stuck, this is hopeless, I'm never going to get out of it? Well, our, uh, if you say that, it's going to be true, first of all. If you say that, it's likely to be true because um, it kind of goes along with the questions people ask themselves. What, why can't I stop eating? Why can't I stop eating? Well, part of the reason you can't stop overeating is because you're asking that question. When you 
ask, why can't I stop overeating? You're directing your brain to gather evidence that you can't stop overeating, and it will, and you'll develop a failure identity. But if you ask, how can I stop overeating? If you look at the research that says that the people who lose weight and keep it off after decades of being overweight, the thing that they have in common is compared to people who yo-yo diet all the time is the number of attempts behind them. So the, the sheer number of times you've tried to lose weight is actually more predictive of success than failure. Your inner lizard brain, that negative voice inside of you will tell you that you've tried so many times before, you always fail, you should just give up and be a happy fat person. But it's actually not true. It's actually pointing out your resilience and fortitude and the likelihood that you'll succeed going forward. So, you know, get up until you stay up. That's the bottom line. The name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. Yeah. And and there's a whole bunch of different reasons why it's very difficult for people to get out of the trap. Like we, you know, we live in a world where big food engineers, these hyper palatable food-like substances, you know, concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt. And it's it's aimed at the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is addiction, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. also do all this research to turn off your hungry and full meters. But, but there are defenses against all of these things. It's not as complicated as it's made out to be. I mean, I'm, I'm living proof that it's possible. And you know, I suppose the million or so readers that we have of the book are proof also. Yeah, I love it. And let's talk about how you are living proof. You know, you, you, that was interesting. I hadn't ever heard that or thought about that, how the number of times that you try is actually a good, a good thing is it shows you're resilient and things of that nature. So tell us from your own story, how many times did you kind of maybe go up and down and you fluctuate until you've kind of gotten to this point where you have been able to ride out you know, this level of success for this this long uh, period of time now? I, I, I certainly don't have enough fingers on my hand to count them. No, I, I struggled for 20, 25 years. Hmm. When I was an adolescent, you know, I'm, I, I can't tell from here, but I'm 6'4". I'm modestly muscular. I'm just, just by luck of the draw I am. And so when I was a kid, if I worked out two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. You know, I was hmm. 17 years old having boxes of Pop-Tarts and two pizzas and, you know, box of muffins, six lattes, chocolate bars, like a bag of chocolate bars, not chocolate bar, but chocolate bars. And I thought it was great. I, I thought it was, like Doug Graham says, a superpower b- because I was thin and happy and, you know, I was doing the things that teenagers do. I was sleeping too much. I was spending too much time in the gym to work it off. I was spending too much time eating, but, um, but I thought it was great. And when I got older, I didn't have time to work out like that. My metabolism slowed down. I was seeing patients. I was commuting two hours a day to go to graduate school. And I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient thinking, when can I get the next pizza? You know, mm. And I really hated that, more, more so than the weight I was gaining. I really I hated the obsession. Like I wasn't really able to be fully present with my patients. And coming from a family of 17 therapists and counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists, I yeah, everybody. Um, something breaks in the house. Everybody runs to ask it how it feels. Nobody goes how to fix it. <laughs> um, it it's it, that's an adventure in and of itself. I could talk to you for a half hour about that. Yeah, but but you know, it was um. So there's a number of different times. So let's go ahead and kind of a jump to. I'm trying to think of what what. I, let's 
jump to, solution? I guess, what kind of let, yeah, I guess the solution. I, I kind of, at some point, when I maybe want to go back to at one of the interim times, but let's go ahead and jump to the last time. What was, what was the difference? You know, I think that's probably what everybody's wondering. What was the difference between the 25th time between the, before, the 24 before it? Nick, I, I had to flip my paradigm. My original paradigm was I must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. I, I thought it was an emotional cause. And, you know, I'm a psychologist, so of course I thought it was a, an emotional cause. And I, I went to see all the best doctors and, you know, I went to Ovaries Anonymous. I went on a spiritual journey. I, I don't regret it because I learned a lot about myself and I think it shaped the person that I am in many ways, but it really didn't help with the food. I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And I was as much, probably almost 300 pounds. I stopped weighing myself and my triglycerides were over a thousand and all types of horrible mm. things that wow. doctors would yell at me about. And, and, but I had the wrong paradigm, but for me, I eventually had to switch the paradigm and be more like the alpha wolf of my own brain. And the transition for me came about because in addition to my clinical, clinical practice, I was a child and family psychologist, worked with couples and kids, not with food addicts. Um, in addition to that, because my my ex-wife, my wife at the time, was traveling for business most of the week. We never had kids. I never commuted. And a lot of time on my hands. So I started a second career consulting for industry. And I wound up working for big food and big pharma, a lot for big food. And I was on the wrong side of the war. I you know, helped feed sugar to kids and things that I should hang my head in shame for having done and making up for it now. But the reason it's relevant to the transition is that I saw what they were doing. I saw the billions of dollars going into um, you know, engineering those food-like substances mm -hmm. to turn off our hungry and full meters. I saw how well the advertising agencies were, how good they were at convincing us that this was where the good stuff was. And most people think advertising doesn't affect them, but you know it affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. And I eventually started saying to myself, these are... These are forces outside of me. They have nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love my, me enough or dropped me on that, my head or, you know, or her mama dropped her in her head. Or It doesn't have anything to do with my psychological upbringing. These are outside forces that were overwhelming forces, much more powerful than you know that they were. And then something happened. I, I was studying alternative addiction treatment literature. I was trying to get myself out of Overeaters Anonymous is what I was doing. And I came across a guy named Jack Trampy who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And he really talked about the uh, seed of addiction being in the reptilian brain. Mm. And what I knew about the reptilian brain from my cursory studies of neurology and my PhD program was that it doesn't know love. The reptilian brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? like a bad mm -hmm. college drinking game. It's the, so this is the reptilian brain. It's the mammalian brain on top of that that says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about, what about your tribe? How's this going to infect the people in your tribe, the people that you love? And then the neocortex says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your longer-term goals? What about weight mm -hmm. loss? What about fitness? And what about everything that makes you human, you know, your contribution to society and the kind of person you're trying to be? And I so. I said, so I'm spending all these years trying to love myself then, but love exists. Everything that makes me human exists in the upper brain when it's the reptilian brain that's responsible for the food addiction. 
the pilgrimage is linked to the feast and famine response. It links links to the fight or flight response. It's part of the sympathetic nervous system that gets revved up for an emergency and says, just hand over the chocolate before someone gets hurt, right? I, we have jokes like that because that's what happens. You have your best laid thinking from a diet book you read over the weekend, and then Monday afternoon you're at Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar in the counter. And there's a little voice in your head that says, you worked out hard enough. It's not going to cost you to gain any weight, right? Yeah. Or, or chocolate grows on a cocoa plant and therefore it's a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. And so I realized I had to switch paradigms to be like the alpha wolf of my own brand. And I started thinking it isn't without parallel, right? There are other bodily functions, other bodily cravings, which we're expected to control with our upper brains. For example, if I had to pee right now really badly, I would tell my bladder that, look, I'm talking to Nick. This is an important interview. I'll take care of you, but I'm going to direct when that comes out and how that comes out later on. You're going to have to wait until the end of the interview. If there's a really attractive woman on the street, I don't run up and kiss her. Right? We're expected to control our biological organs, not just let our, you know, our bladder and our testicles run free. Otherwise, you get in a lot of trouble in a civilized society. And so I said, well, why is food any different? Why are we expected for food to be any different? Part of the reason it's a little different is that we live in a society that seems to have tacitly agreed to slowly kill ourselves with food and support each other to do it. But but otherwise, it's not really that different. And I did a kind of crazy thing. There were some big studies I did in the meantime, but we don't really have time for that. I did a kind of crazy thing. And remember, I was not a psychologist who wanted to work with overeaters. I was just a guy who felt crazy with how much I was eating. And this is a little embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist like me, but um, I decided I had an inner pig. I should have called it my food monster. I should have called it something else so that everybody wouldn't complain about me talking about an inner pig, but that's not what I called it. I called it my inner pig. And I decided that that was really going to be my reptilian brand. That was going to be my moniker for the reptilian brand. I was going to draw very clear, right lines between healthy eating and bad eating. So I was going to work with rules. The conventional wisdom is, I think, in, is wrong in the culture is that rules are bad, but rules eliminate the need for willpower because willpower is the ability to make a good decision. And if you don't have rules, you have to make food decisions all day long. That wears down your willpower. That's why people struggle at night when they feel really committed in the morning. So I would make a rule like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And then if I was in Starbucks and I heard that little voice that said, you worked out hard enough, one chocolate bar won't hurt, just start your silly diet again tomorrow, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig and it's squealing for pig slop. Uh, chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't listen to farm animals. I don't let them tell me what to do. I don't need pig slop. I don't need from a pig trough. And as ridiculous as that sound, after all these years of going to therapists and I even took medication for a while and I did Overeaters Anonymous and all the things that I did to try to heal my soul, uh, which did heal my soul, but didn't stop me from binging. After all that, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me those extra microseconds to make the right decision. It's not that I can tell you that I did that 100% of the time. I did wake up 100% of the time. I didn't make the right decision 100% of the time. But all the confusion was cleared away. It's like, okay, my reptilian brain is active. I have the opportunity to shut it down. There are a bunch of ways I I found to shut it down. One were, one was that um, 
if I could just get myself to take what Laurie Hammond calls a 7-Eleven breath, where you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, that signals your parasympathetic nervous system that there's no emergency. Say, shut, mm. shut down the sympathetic nervous system. There's no hungry bear chasing you. This is not an emergency. It's okay to breathe and think and rest and digest, right? Because if there was a hungry bear chasing me, I would be going. <sighs> but if I breathe in for breathe in for a count of seven or not for a count of 11, I'm slowing down my system and I buy myself the opportunity to think. The other thing I discovered that I could do was to eliminate the pig's justification. There's a phenomenon in psychology called cognitive dissonance. And what that means is that if you commit to something, if you say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again, you did that at a time when you were of sound mind and you had the fortitude to think it through. And it's, it's kind of a sacred commitment to you. It means something, right? And so if you then see yourself contemplating getting a chocolate bar at Starbucks, there's this part of your brain that has to reconcile the two. Otherwise, you feel really bad about yourself. And so there's usually a justification. There's a voice of justification that says, well, it's really not going to hurt to have one or you can just start again tomorrow. So I discovered that I could disempower that justification. I could write down exactly what it was. So let's just say this is the time when it says it'll be just as easy to start again tomorrow. You're not going to get any weight from just one. Well, I can take a step back and say, how is it lying to me? First of all, the principle of neuroplasticity says that what fires together wires together, which means if I have a craving for chocolate and a thought to justify it, and then I eat the chocolate, I'm going to reinforce both the craving and the justification in the process. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow it's going to be harder. If you're in a hole, man, you got to stop digging. The only time you can eat healthy is the present. So I could I could disempower that justification. And then I could also link it to my motivation. So for example, one of the biggest whys for me, so it's not just about having rules, it's about knowing what those rules will do for you. One of the biggest reasons that I stick to my chocolate rules is that I like being a tall, thin, healthy, fit man who can be a leader in the world and hike mountains and you know go out for a whole day and exercise and who is the only man in his family who hasn't had a heart attack you know by the time he was 40. I, I like all those things very much. And so if I would connect not binging to all of those big whys, then I got out of my emergency response system, I disempowered the justification, and I connected it to my why. And that over time, I kept a journal for eight years. I, we can do it a lot faster now, but it took me a long time to put this all together. Over time, this really worked for me. Over time, that all came together. And um, that's the Never Binge Again system. I, yeah. I published it at the request of a business I was in, um, a publishing business, and I had no idea it was going to take off. And now people sometimes point at me and go, pig guy, look at the pig guy. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, it's funny. I think that a lot of, you know, I feel like in the beginning of the book, you'd do a lot of if you hate me for saying you have a pig inside of you or whatever, like you kind of like debunk the whole pig thing and try to make it, make sure people, Hey, what I'm getting at is I think that's really, really important to identify that there is kind of like this separate identity. Because one of the things I think a lot about is how your self identity influences your behavior. Because so many of the people that I work with, take on the identity of, of I am this kind of person. I've always been this way. This is just going to 
be the way things are. And as you said at the beginning of the show, if you say that, then things will always be that way because you continue to live in the identity that you take on for yourself. And so separating the separate identity of this pig is allowing you to act differently from that identity that you're kind of separating outside of yourself. So I, th- I just think that is super, super key and, and, and something that a lot of people probably, you know, hear a lot of people say that to a certain extent. I feel like I, you know, there's this thing inside of me telling me to eat this, but I think if you really like think about it as this separate entity, then you can actually start to take action differently than that person or that thing is, is right. beginning you, you to tell can, you. You can start to build an identity as a successful thin person. And it's your right to structure your mind any way you want to. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your food monster, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But but really what we're doing is we're using a rule to distinguish healthy thoughts from unhealthy thoughts, right? Mm. We're using a rule to distinguish the thoughts that we want to identify with from the thoughts that we want to askew. And so when I say I will never have chocolate on a weekday, what I'm saying is any thought that suggests I have chocolate on a Monday through Friday is a destructive thought for me personally. And I choose to push those thoughts away. I don't really think there's a pig inside of me. It's it's just a device. But at the moment of impulse, you need something very primitive and simple because you're not really in your rational mind when that happens. Talk to me about when you you say you, you choose to push this thought away of having this impulse to have, say, chocolate or whatever snack it might be. Is there like, okay, I'm going to push away this impulse and then I'm going to try to channel my energy to something else? Or is it just identifying that this impulse is not me and therefore that allows me to kind of like push it away? Well, it's kind of both. It's kind of both. Once you recognize that these are not thoughts you want to indulge, then as soon as they start, you can start to ignore them and they lose hope. It's it's um, kind of like a, the brain is very efficient. The brain is very efficient. It wants to conserve energy. And so if it doesn't get rewarded for having a certain type of thought, it eventually stops having them. Mm. Um, it's, it's like a prisoner that um, prisoner that's given a life sentence. That prisoner doesn't want hope. They might try to escape a couple of times, but eventually when they realize there's no escape, they stop hoping because hoping is a waste of energy for them if they know they're really in there for life. It's, it's kind of like that. If you think of the pig as your, your life prisoner, you can't, you can't cut it out because you have a survival drive and it goes wrong sometimes. So that's part of it. And it's, it's not a debate. You're looking at the cancerous logic that the pig has so that you can disempower it and kind of excise it from your brain. But it's not a debate. It's, it's more like an mm-hmm. operation. You're, you're the superior entity. You're in control. Um, that's good. That's good. I think what... I think that thing that you said is so key. I've never heard somebody say that before. If the brain doesn't get rewarded for having a thought, it, it's going to stop having it. And, you know, I think the way that plays itself out or the way that we hear people verbalize that is, I know I've heard a lot of clients of mine be like, it's crazy. I don't even have a sweet tooth anymore. I don't even crave this anymore. I don't even crave that anymore. And I feel like that's exactly what you're what you're getting at with that saying. Yeah. I mean, give me 30 to 60 days without sugar and watch what happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. By the way, you can use this system to eat sugar conditionally. You don't have to give it up entirely. But yeah. the, the cravings will go away faster and you'll get to that state quicker if you um, go through the extinction. And there's nothing wrong if you have cravings while you're going through it. The, the only, mm-hmm. way to, only way to extinguish a craving is to have the craving. Yeah. yeah. Nick, there's, there's one uh, more piece to 
There's one more piece that's kind of important. Could I? Yeah, go for it. Okay, and then I'll go where you want to go. So you're asking me what else do I do? There's usually a physiological need. There's often a physiological need behind a craving. So it wasn't just that I said, well, I don't eat chocolate on a weekday and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I'd ask myself, what do I need? And very often, these cravings would occur at two or three in the afternoon and I needed a salad or a smoothie or you know, some type of nutrition from whole foods that really worked for my body. Um, and that would dramatically soften the craving. It's This system doesn't work so well. I mean, you can do it, but it doesn't work so well if you just kind of white knuckle it and try to install a bunch of Nazi food policemen in your head. It works much better if you look at that as an opportunity to say, what do I really need? Sometimes that's a psychological need. Sometimes you got to step out of the muck. Sometimes you got to you know, put your phone down and walk outside for 10 minutes and just take a breath and stop making decisions for a little while. Um, sometimes it's sleep, sometimes it's a hug, but more often than not, it's because sometimes because people are trying to lose weight too quickly. So I try to get people to flood their body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit if they're trying to lose weight. But you you have to take care of your authentic needs if you want to get out of this crazy diet and then binge cycle. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's so true. There's oftentimes, it's not just about not eating the food. It's about trying to figure out what it is that you need that's showing up in your in your reptilian brain as I need food, where it's really maybe I need to go take a walk. I need stress relief. And there's a lot of other ways to get stress relief rather than going for a cookie. So I think that's I think that's super important to, to acknowledge. One of the things I definitely wanted to, to hear you explain further is, is your thoughts on like commitment and being perfect, but not net, but like also trying to make sure it's not overly restrictive for yourself. And I'm going to kind of lay it out just really quickly. You know, I think one of the things to go in with that's really important is when you are committing to something, it's not maybe, it's not conditional. It's I'm going to do this no matter what. And that's really where you're coming from. I feel like when you say, you are telling yourself, I am going to be perfect. Now, when you screw up or fall short, that doesn't mean you completely stop. Then you make the decision again to be perfect from that point forward. And one of the things that I really liked from a quote from your book was, perfectionism may be a setup for a binge when you apply it after a mistake has occurred. But when you use it to lock in your commitments at the outset, just the opposite is true. I think that's really important. The one thing I wrote down is like perfectionism, you want to use it to your advantage from a sense of commitment, but you don't want to use it when it's in a sense of reflecting, I'm not perfect anymore, so I'm screwed. So talk to, just give me a riff a little bit on the idea of that perfectionism, commitment, but not like overly restrictive kind of idea. You're one of the few people who picks that up and understands it perfectly just from reading the book. That's that's phenomenal. I'm very impressed. Um, Thank you. There's this idea of progress, not perfection in our culture. And the problem is that the energy and perfectionism, um, the results that you get from that energy is contextual. If If you use it, as a commitment tool, like when an archer is aiming at the bullseye, they're not thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they see the an Olympic archer, good archer, sees the arrow going into the target before they let go, right? Now, an Olympic archer only hits the bullseye 30 to 40% of the time. So, so why would they do that? Well, because 
by committing with perfection, you're not allowing doubt and uncertainty to drain your mind and your body of the energy and focus it needs on the goal. All you can see is the goal and you're much more likely to hit it. Similarly, because you're aiming at a bullseye, you're not aiming at a fuzzy bullseye that says, well, I'm just going to try to eat well. Or No, you, you know where that bullseye begins and ends. And if you miss it, you know in what direction and by how much, so you know how to make the adjustments. You have a feedback loop in place so that you have to get better. We are learning machines. If you get up and aim again, no matter how much you miss the bullseye by, you're going to learn something and be able to hit it more. When you miss the bullseye, if you say, damn it, I'm a pathetic archer. I should just shoot the rest of the arrows up into the air, into the audience. That's not going to work out so well for you. Or if you touch a hot stove, if you say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Uh, I should just put my whole hand down on the stove and let, let it roast. Hope nobody will do that. <laughs> You're using perfectionism against your best interests. What happens if you touch a hot stove is you want to First of all, you want to have the intention to never touch a hot stove again. This is where the book is called Never Binge Again. You want to perfectly avoid touching hot stoves. That's got to be your intention. I think everybody could agree on that. At the same time, if you made a mistake, you need to say, "Where? how did I make that mistake? How am I going to avoid that in the future? You don't want to say I'm a pathetic hot stove. You want, you want to turn the pain into responsibility. So mm. we need to be able to feel a little bit of guilt and shame. It's not something to be afraid of. But we don't want to get stuck with the guilt and shame by being perfectionistic as we're analyzing the mistakes. We want to extract whatever information we can from the mistake, figure out what we can learn from it, and then get up and aim at the bullseye again. So mm. yeah, the pig does it just the opposite. If you miss the bullseye, it says, if you're not perfect, then you're nothing. You're pathetic. You might as well just go binge again. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, was, that was very well explained. And I really think that people need to use, I think, I mean, both aspects of it are really important, but like you said, so many people use progress, not perfection. And, you know, one of the things that I always tell people is we don't necessarily want to have the all or nothing mindset, but to me, that's a little bit different than perfection, or at least how I apply that with how I coach it is different than the perfection thing. But I think it really, really is important to go in with the idea of I'm going to be perfect because I'm going to be completely committed. And like you said, it removes the doubt and the uncertainty that that attracts energy from you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, that's no, so no, no matter key. how many times you missed the bullseye before, you got to aim yeah. for perfection anyway. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. So I'm actually, into, um, I'm curious for you, are, do you ever, are you ever fearful or do you have doubt or uncertainty about you ever falling back into binging we'll be back to the interview in just a second but first i wanted to share a quick testimonial from a past participant of the 10-week transformation program i started running the 10wt in the beginning of 2020 and i've had over 150 people on counting go through it and they've seen amazing results both inside and out if you're inspired to join after listening to the testimonial then go to nickcarrier.com to learn more we'll get back to the episode in just a minute but first here's what they had to say uh, my name's Angela, and I joined because I am training for a half marathon, and I wanted something to kind of complement that training. So overall, I think I've lost 12 pounds, but more than that, uh, just gained a lot of confidence, kind of got out of my comfort zone to push myself. I made some really great friends as well, along the way. 
That was also part of the reason why I joined. Like I did want to get out of my comfort zone. Um, but I will just say the people and Nick's been great. Behind every, when it comes to toxic pleasures, like, like overeating foods, every fear is a wish. If I would experience fear, I would say, well, my pig is active for some reason. And no self-respecting pig is just going to go to sleep. It's going to try now and then. So my pig is planning something. What's my pig planning? And I would think about what it's planning, and I would um, make a plan to counter that. I would either disempower its logic, or I'd figure out, you know, like, for example, I'm going to be, I don't travel that often, but my girlfriend and I are going to be going to Maine to do some hiking next week. And I had the initial sense of fear of going through the airports. It's going to be a long day. How am I going to keep my body neutrified? And I said, okay, I just need to plan this out. What, what airports am I going to? I can actually look up where the food service is inside the airport. If there's a delay, I'm going to go get, you know, this salad with some grains here or something like that. Um, and then I have a plan and then the anxiety goes away. So it's not that it never comes up, but I immediately recognize it as pig activity and know what to do about it. As a consequence of having done that over and over and over again and recognizing that I'm no longer powerless, that I'm really in control here, I, I have 100% confidence that I don't ever have to binge again. So, mm. yeah. Back to just one more topic before I ask the last question is, and it's kind of along the same lines of the perfection thing, but you talk about having foods and, and putting foods in different categories of the never, always, unrestricted, and conditionals. How do you know when to put a food in the never category versus maybe a, a, a conditional category? Usually when people ask me that question, it's because they're having trouble com coming to terms with something they need to give up for a while. Um, there, there is a way to, to gauge it. And the stats on this come out to about two-thirds of my clients seem to be able to moderate foods, you know, like have sugar on the weekends or you know, only on Fridays at a coffee shop with their wife or something like that. Um, and one-third of them just has to avoid it altogether. Mm. And what you can do is you can imagine two different rules. So one rule would be, I'll never eat sugar again. And another rule would be, only eat, you know, sugar at a coffee shop with my wife on Friday mornings, right? And then imagine that a year is go a year goes by, and you imagine it under two different scenarios, and see what your future would look like. What do you imagine your future would look like in a year if you attempted to follow the no sugar at all rule versus you attempting to follow the only sugar on Fridays rule? Usually, if those futures are not too different then you're probably a moderator and not an abstainer. You can probably have sugar on Fridays with your wife. Mm -hmm. If those futures look radically different, if the one where you're trying to have sugar on Friday with your wife, you can see yourself having game 10 pounds or suffering with inflammation and all the you know, ravages of eating too much sugar, then you probably know that at least for a while, you need to experiment with having it out of your diet entirely. Mm. That's good. That's good. I, I've always known like people that I work with I know that there are the, there are some people who just are like, I need to cut it out. I need to cut it out. I need to cut it out. But there are people who are moderators. And I do feel like that's a, that's a relatively, that's an insightful ratio of about two thirds to one third. And I think ask, I think seeing that, asking that question is, is something that is very telling to, uh, to, a, to a coach like myself as well. You, but you uh, could, can I say one more thing about it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I just want to get you out of here on time. No, I know. I got to go in a little bit, but this is kind of important. Now I forgot what it was. 
<laughs> Sorry, we were talking about, I was talking about how a coach, you know, moderator versus abstainer, two-thirds, maybe moderators, one-third abstainer. Some people think they just can't. Okay, um, yeah. So, so it's, it's going to help you to make that decision if you do a 30-day experiment without it in your diet. Assuming it's not something that's nutritionally necessary. And as far as I know, there's no doctor or, or you know, professional out there that's saying that you could develop a deficiency of processed sugar or something like that. You know, sorry, you have to eat some bagels right away. I, don't, I haven't heard that from a, from a doctor yet. So if you get it out of your system for 30 days, you'll be able to think more clearly about whether you want it back in your system or not. And we regularly do those experiments with people. And you know, a lot of people go back and say, yes, I'm going to try to do it once a week. And um, some people say, no, I really like the way it feels without it. Why would I want to go back? Mm, I like it. I Nothing like wrong it. with a 30 day experiment. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, well, awesome. Before I ask the last question, Glenn, I just want to acknowledge you. I think your book is obviously impacting uh, thousands, if not millions, of people in, in such a positive way because there's, I mean, so many different people are dealing with this to differing degrees. And I think the great thing about your book and, and your content and your education is no matter what degree that you are suffering with this problem on, there is something in there that you can utilize and something in there that will, will help you and benefit you in the long term. So I just want to acknowledge you for the work that you've done on yourself over the, the 25-year journey Thank plus and, and serving yeah. everybody else, of course. Appreciate that. Yeah. Of course. Can, well, can everybody, go ahead. I was going to tell them where they can get a free copy. Yeah, for sure. If you, um, if you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big, re big red button, it says free book. You can, um, you can enter your email and we will send you a free digital copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We'll also show you where you can get the paperback or the audible. It's, there's a charge for those. And um, you'll get a set of food plan starter templates. The, the program and the book are diet agnostic. So I'm a whole foods plant-based person myself, but we have a lot of people that do keto or point counting or calorie counting or vegan or, you know, the like. And so we put some time and thought into figuring out sets of rules that you can adopt for your own use, um, depending upon your dietary philosophy. And um, I know this sounds really weird. Like, why does Nick have this doctor on that has a pig inside of him? This is, this must sound like really cruel in the abstract, but it's actually a very compassionate process, which takes people from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused to feeling hopeful and excited and capable in just one session. And I recorded a bunch of sessions to let you see what that's like. It's all free. Neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, last question then, Glenn, is I think that in order to get closer to the best version of yourself, it's a constant journey. I don't think we ever actually get to that best version of ourselves, And I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you do. And so last question is for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to the best version of Glenn Livingston that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Um, I could read more and I am currently working on that. I've, I'm actually using never binge again rules to get me to read more. And that's, um, just starting to work. It took me a little while to figure that out, but that's working. That's um, awesome. I could spend more time analyzing my dreams. So I've been doing that for a while and that's working very well. I wrote my dissertation on dreams and creativity and, um, that's a whole other podcast, but it, it's yeah. been a, a very important part of my life. And, um, I could spend more time traveling a little bit and hiking. I, I hiked all 48, 4,000 foot mountains in New Hampshire when I lived there. And I, when I got divorced six years ago, I kind of stopped doing that. And 
So I've been telling myself I want to take more trips and see some friends. And yeah, so I'm working on all those three things and I appreciate the question. And that's great stuff. I have a brother who did the Appalachian Trail through hike a few years ago, and he just did the Colorado Trail. So he's he's a big hiker uh, as well. But anyways, three great things, Glenn. It's been an absolute blast today. I know it's been so valuable for everybody who's listened, uh, who has this problems to a small degree or even a, a large degree. Y'all make sure you go get that free copy at neverbingeagain.com. Glenn, it was a pleasure. Appreciate Thanks, man. it, man. It was great. It was great. Damn, that was good. I hope y'all took some great notes on that podcast because no matter how much you do or don't struggle with binge eating, I guarantee there was at least one thing in that episode that you could use to your advantage. If you enjoyed it, make sure you share the episode with a friend or family member by sending them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. And remember, that voice inside of your brain is your reptilian brain. It's that pig. It's the thing that was around millions of years ago. Let your human brain, your neocortex, have time to rationally think about your long-term goals before making impulse decisions. And remember to make rules for yourself so that willpower is not an issue. And lastly, remember that the only time you can eat healthy is in the present. Don't wait to eat healthy in the future. Start turning your pain and your frustration into responsibility today. Man, I absolutely love that episode with Glenn. But for now, it's time. It's time to put these things into action, to stop listening to our pig, to commit with perfection in mind, but with the ability to bounce back from a lack of perfection when we inevitably fall short. Because it's not about if you get knocked down, it's that you get back up one more time than you get knocked down. That's what will allow you to continue to get closer and closer to your best you. 